everyone. This is Jasmine Singer, the executive director, co-founder, and co-host of Our Hen House, a media hub producing podcasts that change the world for animals. I am so pleased to welcome you to the final episode of the four-part audio series of the book, Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation. It was a true honor to be the editor of this new anthology published by Lantern Books and Media, and it was a joy to work alongside Encompass, in particular, Arianish Birdie and Michelle Rojas Soto, on bringing this book to creation. Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation, is a collection of essays written by farmed animal protection advocates who are committed to exploring and prioritizing racial equity as we work to create a more just animal protection movement. We wish to document our stories and processes in an exploratory space from which we can grow and use our words to hold ourselves and our peers accountable, ultimately creating new paths forward. Those of us who contributed to this anthology were attendees of Encompass's two 2020 Racial Equity Institutes. Encompass, the nonprofit that organized the institutes, aims to make the farmed animal protection space more effective by working with white folks to operationalize racial equity, as well as by working with individual advocates of the global majority to cultivate our individual and our collective leadership. This anthology was originally an online collaboration between Encompass, Our Hen House, and Sentient Media, and it was titled Encompass Essays, Pursuing Racial Equity in Animal Advocacy. For citations of any of these essays, please visit the online version found at sentientmedia.org. Sentient Media is a robust digital platform that publishes thoughtful articles about animal agriculture and its impact on the world. You can purchase the hard copy of Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation, wherever books are sold, or you can find out more information at encompassmovement.org book. We are so pleased to present the final episode of the four-part audio series of the book, Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation. And if you haven't yet listened to the other episodes of this four-part series, I recommend you at least go back to the first episode and listen to the glossary of terms. It might make it clearer for you as you listen to the rest of this episode. Hi, I'm Ariana Spurdy, founder and executive director of Encompass. At Encompass, we're making the farmed animal protection movement more effective by fostering racial diversity, equity, and inclusion so that everyone can bring 100% of their brilliance to work for animals. Join us at encompassmovement.org or on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at EncompassMVMT, short for movement. Thanks so much. Episode four, leading. I have a hard time accepting diversity as a synonym for justice. Diversity is a corporate strategy. It's a strategy designed to ensure that the institution functions in the same way that it functioned before, except now you have some black faces and brown faces. It's a difference that doesn't make a difference. Diversity without structural transformation simply brings those who were previously excluded into a system as racist, misogynist, as it was before. Angela Davis. In this section, we will hear from the following four essay authors. 
These are the brief bios for each of them. Michelle Rojas Soto, she, her, is the Chief Talent and Equity Officer at KIPP SoCal Charter Schools. She previously served as Managing Director of Encompass, where she trained, coached, and consulted with animal protection leaders and organizations. Michelle is focused on creating equitable systems so that future generations on Earth thrive. Steen Vanderplug, she, they, leverages her management and fundraising experience pro bono for effective animal advocacy organizations to help make our world more hospitable to all. Michelle Graham, Michelle Michelle's, is the executive director of Wild Animal Initiative and a PhD candidate in the Socha Lab at Virginia Tech. Arianish Birdie, she, her, is the founder and executive director of Encompass, building a racially equitable animal protection movement. You're about to hear four essays by the authors I just mentioned, followed by an afterword written and narrated by Michelle Rojas Soto. Now let's get to it. Hi, my name is Michelle Rojas Soto, and I'll be reading to you my essay titled Oppression Without Hierarchy, Racial Justice and Animal Advocacy. Why did they choose you? That was the question a white animal advocate asked me in the midst of a casual conversation one day, referring to my hire as managing director at a new animal rights nonprofit organization, one that sought to grow the movement by educating millions through targeted advertisements akin to those used to curb smoking in the 1990s. Now, why would a person with 15 years experience in nonprofit management and entrepreneurship, plus an MS and an MBA, get asked why they were chosen for a job in senior leadership of a startup 501c3 that required deep analytical, strategic, and operations skills? The answer is staggeringly simple. It was a racial microaggression the likes of which I and all other Black, Indigenous, and people of the global majority, by PGM, experience at random, in any setting, and without advance warning. Because of my current work as the Managing Director for Encompass, a nonprofit focusing on pursuing racial equity within farmed animal rights spaces, I've developed a well-worn understanding of microaggressions. This deep-set knowledge protects me from some though not all, of the negative impact that comes with these painful experiences. Try as I might, I can't diminish the hurt and restore myself without spending precious energy and time. From talking with many other by PGM, I know I'm in good company there. Interpersonal racism, individuals as oblivious agents of white supremacy. While any particular encounter is open to interpretation, research has found that BIPGM are much more accurate in their identification and assessment of microaggressive encounters than white people, who are usually unaware they have microaggressed someone in the first place. So in order to develop sophisticated racial literacy, white folks must accept and respect BIPGM's point of view. And here is that point of view. Microaggressions are not small nor unimportant to those of us on the receiving end. In fact, the opposite is true. They take place at the interpersonal or micro level, 
They are, by nature, ambiguous and subtle, and they siphon emotional energy away from the targeted party's focus. Because of their chronicity, microaggressions have a significant negative impact in the physical and mental health of their targets. How could they not, when racism is embedded in every part of life in this society, relentlessly undermining and attacking BIPGM for our entire lifetimes? Like most people who have been targeted with microaggressions, on that day when my qualifications were doubted, I didn't speak up. Despite my long history with being microaggressed, the comment took me by surprise, and by the time I processed what had happened, the moment was over and I was exhausted from the internal turmoil. If you're by PGM, this probably sounds familiar. There's a very good chance that everyone reading this essay has microaggressed. I know I certainly have. And not just once, but repeatedly. If you are so lucky that someone you microaggress recognizes in that moment your potential for growth and lets you know you have erred, do not question their experience nor discount your impact. On the contrary, let this be a wake-up call that teaches you how so many of us are complicit agents of white supremacy and pledge to tear it apart bit by bit by preventing microaggressions in the first place and making amends for them when they happen anyway. So if you're called out or called in, thank the person brave enough to say something. Then say you're sorry. What a terrific gift you've just received. Being receptive to feedback and promptly making amends is surely a powerful way we can show up as anti-racists. Structural racism. White Supremacy Culture at the Core of Animal Rights Nonprofits Interpersonal microaggressions are just one of the ways in which racism manifests in the institutional animal rights movement. White-led, well-established, well-resourced advocacy nonprofits. Given my role as Managing Director at Encompass, my focus is the institutional farmed animal protection movement. Racism is indeed baked into the movement's nonprofits, into our vision for the future, into our strategies, into our leadership, into our accountability or lack thereof, into our staffing, into our campaigns, into our communications, into our cursory nod to diversity, and into our isolation from broad social justice and the communities we do and should serve. While the pervasive narrative is that nonprofits are disadvantaged and perennially operating in scarcity, it is also true that white-led nonprofits in the movement have a lot of institutional power that grassroots advocates do not possess. Grassroots work is done mostly by BIPGM and is grossly underfunded, underappreciated, and misunderstood. Given that race is a strong predictor of inputs and outputs in the movement, which is the very definition of racial inequity, prominent nonprofits and the white individuals who hold the most power most own up to and grapple with how the world of animal rights benefits from and contributes to racial inequities by perpetuating oppression within. Certainly, our movement is no racist outlier. It's actually just the opposite. We are subject and susceptible to the same racist ideology systems, and behaviors as other peoples immersed in white supremacist cultures. 
That said, I find racism inside animal protection to be particularly painful because our cause is inherently against oppression. And yet, collectively, we are indifferent towards racism and callous with BIPGM. When will that finally change? The Animal Protection Workspace from an Outsider's Perspective Motivated by health concerns, eight years ago I switched to a plant-based diet overnight. Always the discerning thinker, I then became very curious about the ethical and environmental implications of animal agriculture, so I read several books and articles. Within a year, I began to feel in my heart that eschewing all animal products is entirely necessary if we are to have any hope at a civilized, sustainable society. What I found, admittedly, blew my mind. I realized there was such a strong ideological connection between animal protection and racial and gender justice, causes I already cared so deeply about, that I wanted to incorporate animal advocacy into my life as well. I'll spare you the details of how I regularly ask myself, how could I not have known? If you're vegan, this is likely an all too familiar moment in your own evolution too. But as a longtime activist and brand new vegan, I was still an outsider looking in and what I saw was troubling. Upon first glance, I noticed that the animal protection movement was, why was I surprised? Fundamentally racist. Campaign rhetoric, marketing images, recommended diets, virtually all white leadership, and from where I stood, alarmingly unprofessional. Acrimonious social media battles, minimal infrastructure or staff support, private club dynamics. As you can imagine, my observations kept me away for years. But the world changes, and so do we. Our approach, our focus, and our commitment as activists and change makers. In time, I was able to expand my internal capacity to resist, reject, and challenge racism in the animal protection movement, which is what made it possible for me to embrace work within this flawed yet passionate movement. Building that resilience will be a lifelong journey for me. It will never be over. There are three things that have helped me most in this quest. Having a rich home life, studying history, and cultivating lots of experiences outside the animal rights movement. Currently, my long professional career in other fields has given me depth and breadth of perspective, which have also proven to be valuable as a leader in a developing social justice space. A word of caution. I am not alone in my hesitation to get involved in animal advocacy. By PGM, excel at spotting racism and most of us avoid it as much as possible so that we can endure. Let me be clear. Racism in this field is a major reason why there are so few by PGM in its ranks and fewer still in leadership positions at the largest groups. This is a terrible loss for the movement, which is missing out on great talent and skills that find a home in other industries and social justice realms, further delaying the progress of animal advocacy both in absolute and relative terms. Can white-led groups build a global movement for animal liberation? Collectively, our goal is to end farmed animal suffering and exploitation worldwide. And yet, 
The institutional animal protection movement does not share a worldview or culture with the world it is trying to influence and transform. By Encompass's estimations, about 11% of farmed animal advocates in the United States are by PGM. This is in sharp contrast to 39.9% of the U.S. population, estimated by the Census Bureau. In any other setting, a 72% racial representation deficit would be recognized as a systemic failure. And yet, in the animal protection movement, many struggle to understand the serious negative consequences of a cater of white-led organizations attempting to build a global movement. What is up with this colossal divide? Nor does this movement live like the rest of the world. Currently, nonprofits whose goals are to change the treatment of animals are clustered along the coasts of the United States, where mostly white, upper-middle-class advocates create strategies that are exported to other cultures, perpetuating an imperialistic approach that has caused much harm to people in the Americas, Africa, Australia, and Asia. For the sake of the farmed animals we advocate for, we must realize that the white American experience is not neutral. It is not a clean slate on which we can sprinkle bits of diversity and ethnicity for flavor. We must check ourselves every time we center whiteness in animal advocacy, which happens every day because white supremacy culture is leading us astray. White supremacy in the movement is why I stayed away in the first place, and it is why I'm writing this essay now. The antidote to white supremacy is equity. The state where everyone has what they need to succeed and identity does not predict outcomes. Let us work on equitable movement building so that we develop the capacity to transform animal agriculture worldwide. Our community-wide challenge, should we choose to accept it, is to open our eyes to white supremacy all around and to not look away when it overwhelms us. Whack-a-mole advocacy is a losing proposition. Many in the animal protection movement consider the plight of non-human animals especially dire and worthy of single-minded attention. For example, we devote massive resources to outreach campaigns that ask by PGM and socioeconomically poor people to change their eating habits, yet we don't acknowledge, call out, nor address the widening chasm of socioeconomic inequity. Inside the movement's nonprofits, BIPGM advocates are often required to stay silent about their own experiences with oppression while concurrently being pigeonholed in outreach positions within BIPGM communities. This is not okay. In my four years working in the movement, I have witnessed many white animal advocates deny racism, discount its impact, and promote single-issue focus on animals, brushing off anti-racism as a separate issue, quote-unquote as their preferred strategy. But this strategy puts the movement at risk of irrelevance and ineffectiveness. Just like carnism conditions people to be unaware of farmed animals' pain, racism conditions white animal advocates to remain unaware of the plight of BIPGM, to believe that pure animal advocacy is superior and that combining it with anti-racism is counterproductive. Yet, Systems of oppression are interconnected in a tangled web and regularly benefit from one another. In other words, speciesism is made stronger by racism, 
which is made stronger by sexism, which is made stronger by heterosexism, ableism, and on and on. But instead of being ordered in sequence, each node of oppression is connected to every other node, creating a very strong and resilient system. My lived experience as a Black Latinx woman helps me see these connections so clearly. In many ways, all people from marginalized groups do too. Those of us on the target end of oppression face challenges every single day. The fact that we are still here, that many of us thrive in spite of so much adversity, is a testament to our resilience, resourcefulness, and intelligence, not to the benevolence of white supremacy culture. It is disheartening, to say the least, that we as a movement don't embrace BIPGM's collective wisdom and let it guide our strategy. Oppression is the manifestation of our commitment to inequity. Its roots are deep, going all the way back in time to the early settlers who were able to produce a surplus through agriculture. When people began to specialize, and some people lived off of the physical work of others. With oppressive roots so well established, we can expect that transitioning to an equitable model of agriculture and of civilization will require tremendous, sustained, strategic work across all sectors of society. Because oppressions are interconnected to create a viable anti-speciesist future, we have to also live anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-heterosexist, anti-ableist values. That's a tall order, certainly. Yet nothing short of that will accomplish the radical, sustainable shift towards equity that we desire. At best, single-issue focus creates short-term gains that are quickly eroded as soon as we look away. So let's stop looking away. Reason as anchor. By anchoring animal advocacy in white supremacy culture, we are trying to change the world by using the same tools and strategies that got us here in the first place. Top-down patriarchy, capitalism, and imperialism. It makes no sense to seek equity using the tools that brought us crippling, lethal inequities at every turn. Instead, I want to be a part of an animal protection movement that studies and learns from history and that pursues comprehensive, systemic transformation as the path forward. To bring about an equitable future for farmed animals, we need to be intentional about how and where we go. In other words, we need to reinvent our strategies and redefine our values. Putting an end to non-human animal exploitation and suffering will be very difficult, so much more than we think, because the status quo has been entrenched for so long and because the people who benefit from any and all oppressions will fight vigorously. Grounding ourselves in this reality helps us accept the challenge in all its complexity and ready ourselves for the long haul. Movement building through interdependence and collaboration. As we think about equity in the context of crafting strategy, it is important to consider that farmed animals need help at many levels simultaneously. From thirst relief while on the road to slaughter, to ever after refuge in sanctuaries, from plant-based education to socio-political advocacy, I'm from a total reconfiguration and reconceptualization of the human food supply 
to a reimagining of our relationship to non-human animals, each other, and the planet. This movement is comprised of people with a remarkable capacity to care about the world and some of its unpopular inhabitants. We have the capacity to stretch further in order to realize these seemingly exclusive approaches to advocacy are interdependent. If we collaborate across advocacy levels, we have the potential to achieve progress of historic proportions. What I wish for this movement is the humility and bravery required to realize that potential and to do so in a way that is inclusive and fresh. Though a tall order, complete transformation is indeed possible because working at these intersections can simultaneously cultivate the best of our humanity. All we need to do is tap into our multiple intelligences and the cumulative wisdom of our lived experiences. Working through problems in neatly structured flowcharts is the stuff of 19th and 20th century thinking. Equity requires us to think non-linearly and multidimensionally, which is a stretch for each of us individually, but not collectively. Equity at the core and radiating out. We often think of strong organizational values as a nice to have, a sign of sophistication for those who can afford the time to craft them. Instead, values give us clarity of purpose and help us make decisions in the face of uncertainty and incomplete information. For those of us who care about issues of equity, organizational values are crucial because they are both aspirational and grounded in accountability, helping us overcome our biases in the day-to-day -day where we spend most of our conscious time. The following values, implemented collectively, could transform the farmed animal protection movement and make it more effective, powerful, relevant, and resilient. One, cultivate power within instead of power over others. Distributed power is regenerative, cyclical, inclusive, and allows us to cultivate the power within every advocate. Two, face our movement's foundation in inequity as an essential step to divest from the fear and defensiveness that consume so much of our energy and prevent equity from taking hold. Three, seek out feedback and be grateful for constructive criticism from marginalized people, however it is given. Do not get defensive. Four, develop cultural literacy in the most inclusive terms, racial, ethnic, national, gender, sexual, age, abilities, etc. Five, map systems of contribution, not blame. Show appreciation for what is good and make amends for what is wrong. Study history and seek to understand how it is impacting us today. Six, map systems of impact and project impact multiple generations into the future. Seven, draft realistic work plans that measure progress in generations, not years. Eight, Acknowledge complexity and strive to develop and implement strategies that are in tune with complexity. Nine, embrace human subjectivity and focus on understanding others' perspectives as a strategic imperative. Value long-term relationship building. Ten, prioritize process and sustainability over quick, measurable results. 
11. Value and support community-driven, community-centric work as mission critical. And 12. View animal rights advocacy as a note in the pursuit of justice. Cultivate interdependence and collaboration across animal advocacy organizations, across sectors, and across social justice movements. To be sure, my logic and my work are not finished products. I invite collaboration and refinement from other equity-minded and culturally literate folks working inside, on the margins, and outside the animal protection space. At the same time, let's agree that the path forward and the quest for justice must be built on equity. There is simply no other way forward. Collectivism, our duty to protect marginalized advocates. That racial microaggression I experienced a couple of years ago, like all other instances of oppression, carried within it all of the past and present forces of oppression combined. Realize then just how many opportunities we have every day to make positive change when we interrupt racism with micro-interventions. If you are white, this might mean connecting a BIPGM leader to a major donor, speaking up in support of grassroots advocacy, and interrupting racist jokes, for example. When we use our power to influence, our power to lead, our power to fund, and our power to amplify the most marginalized among us, the potential for change and liberation becomes massive. We are all responsible for the health of the animal protection movement. Organization leaders have the most institutional power. Philanthropists have the most financial power. Rank-and-file staff have the most interpersonal power. Whatever role you play, you are, in fact, performing. Perform your role equitably so that we can create equity for all living beings. The pursuit of equity is not a thought exercise. I vividly remember a conversation I had with my mother when I was in my senior year of high school. I had just been elected class president, and I was stunned by the news that thousands of dollars our class had raised for the past five years had disappeared while in the care of our previous treasurer. I simply didn't know what to do. The truth is, I knew that the previous treasurer had come from a very challenging home life, and I felt it would be irresponsible of me to lead without first having all the facts and without legal and financial expertise. As this all swirled around in my head, I was also concerned about appearing to be a steamroller by overriding the work of the previous student administration. This kind of imposter syndrome is not uncommon for girls and women. I didn't know how to move forward. My mother, always the wise one, looked me in the eye and said, Michelle, if you don't make a choice, that in and of itself is a choice. You are choosing for someone else to choose for you. My mom was right. Gracias, mamá. Once I looked at it through that lens of choice, it became clear that I had a lot of options available to me, and also that I could help set the tone for what happened next. In the end, I chose to focus on rallying the class to fundraise hard for eight powerful months, welcome the press treasurer socially, and open a bank account with a trusted parent. Come late May, we had a lovely, modest prom with a live merengue band. That story might seem quaint from an adult perspective, but it was life-changing for me, and the lesson learned has continued to guide me to this day.
waiting for someone else, maybe someone better, to come along and solve my problems for me is definitely a strategy, but one that doesn't honor my agency and one I could never be proud of. My mom's mantra applies to every choice in life, big and small, personal and professional, individual and collective. The pursuit of equity is not a thought exercise, and we don't have unlimited time. Act, we must. Fellow animal advocates, there is no one better coming. We have as much chance of creating an equitable animal protection movement as anyone. Let us commit today to do everything in our individual and collective power to stamp out oppression in all its forms as the surest way to help non-human animals. White animal advocates, you have the most privilege and power in this movement, benefiting from a long history that has favored your ancestors and you. It is time to share your power and divest from it. I expect that will be painful for you in the short term. However, growing pains are only temporary and ultimately lead to true strength and lasting liberation. Hello, my name is Steen van der Ploeg. I am the author of this piece. It is International Animal Protection is Stronger When It's Anti-Racist. I am not the first nor the last to point out that as a person in the global majority, it can be difficult to feel you belong in the animal advocacy space. Encompass has made clear the need for animal protection organizations to operationalize racial equity to effectively further the mission of animal protection. And I should know, depending on the situation, I present as white, like my Dutch mother, and I receive many of the unearned benefits that come with that. But I relate just as much to my father's Indonesian Dutch heritage as an Indo. Like him, I am a product of colonialism. Aside from my mixed heritage, my parents can also claim some responsibility for the good I do for animals a passion that has morphed into my career working in animal advocacy. My mother, Ria, has been a vegetarian since before I was born. And when my father, Dre, caught me stomping on ants like the other preschoolers did, he taught me that even though we might not want them in our home, they deserve to live their lives. Benefits of a Diverse Movement Some time ago, during my preparation for a talk I was to present at an international animal rights conference, I asked the organizers if all other speakers were white. My question was met with defensiveness, which caught me by surprise. When I reacted by volunteering to help find relevant black indigenous or people of the global majority, I heard crickets. For a moment, I doubted if I still wanted to be there. I wondered whether it made sense for me to put my energy into volunteering to present at a conference that didn't put the effort into trying to reach and relate to a white audience and present different perspectives on effective animal advocacy. It should be without question that any organization that wants to realize the full potential of its employees should be taking action to create safe and inclusive workspaces so that their staff is set up for success and the same should hold true for speakers invited to a conference that benefits a social justice movement. Research backs this up by showing that a diverse workforce can be a potent source of innovation and a diverse team is better at selling products and ideas to diverse audiences. Plus, 
Animal advocates want everyone to take a stand against non-human animal suffering, not just the people with identities similar to their own. So if animal protection is positioned as a cause for and championed by the privilege, my friends who struggle with the marginalization of their own communities will find it hard to devote energy to non-human animal issues. And I would rather see us fight oppression together. Aside from being better for animals and our co-workers, if we want to live in a racially just society where all people have what they need to prosper, we must reflect on the ways our own animal advocacy community might perpetuate inequity, such as hosting animal protection conferences that are disproportionately white. The context of colonialism. As European and US animal organizations increasingly expand globally, running projects and offices around the world, the necessity to learn how racial inequity is woven into our nation's power structures, as well as our organizational cultures, becomes even greater. The hundreds of years of domination of indigenous peoples and lands shapes the current unequal distribution of power, poverty, and dependency on foreign aid. Eurocentric strategies held by our movement, alienated from heritage and history, risk setting our work back by many years and causing further distrust among Black, Indigenous, the people of the global majority, and white animal advocates. As animal advocates in the West expand the scope of their work to areas in the global South where meat production and consumption are growing, it's important to remind ourselves that the legacies of colonialism are still being felt across the globe. We cannot allow colonialist thinking and racial inequity to poison our impact on the liberation of animals or our fellow humans. Disregarding the effects of global power relations and cultural differences on local animal advocacy can result both in disempowering local advocates and counterproductive interventions. We need to find a better way. Decentralizing cultural humility and anti-racism. Before I discuss racial justice in our global animal advocacy movement, I'll distinguish three general ways in which exclusion and inequity can be at play in international organizations. By tackling each of them, teams will likely be more effective as we create new systems that allow well-meaning advocates to contribute to both animal welfare and human well-being. First, there's headquarter centrism, where feelings of exclusion exist due to inconsiderate central bureaucratic control over satellite offices, such as when all meetings are held in the head office's time zone or when all decisions need to be approved by people at headquarters. Without location-neutral and decentralized communication and administration processes, colleagues abroad will feel disconnected and underappreciated. Second, without cultural humility, when we embrace that our way is not the only way, there is a risk of a clash between the customs and values of the different regions of operation. These conflicts not only can lead to job dissatisfaction, but also to failed projects. Without learning about the norms and moral principles of the country you operate in, coworkers will lose trust in each other and fail to collaborate or share resources productively. And campaigns could also fail because the best strategy in Western Europe might not work in Russia or Indonesia due to different social, political, and economical contexts. The third is the most complex issue, structural racism. The specific injustices that Black people in the U.S. face might at first seem irrelevant 
to the impact you make on factory farming in developing countries. But racial biases and systems that perpetuate white supremacy, and particularly anti-blackness, have spread around the world through hundreds of years of colonialism and cultural imperialism, and influence our approach to animal advocacy everywhere. Without addressing those issues, both abroad and at home, our co-workers in the countries outside our original base of operations will suffer the same inefficiencies related to uniformity. Racial injustice takes distinct forms in different cultures, but knowledge of how privilege functions in the US can help your coworkers abroad detect normalized discrimination of marginalized communities in their own country. For example, when we do not root our international organization strategies in anti-racism, we could perpetuate Brazil's myth of racial democracy as we encourage Brazilians to go cage-free and preserve colorism in Nigeria while spreading plant-based diets. And we then also limit the results and impact of our efforts. Race consciousness, not colorblindness, will help your white team in Eastern Europe partner productively with their colleagues of color abroad. But far too few organizations consider even that. Issues of inequality in international animal advocacy. Now that I've identified these three levels of exclusion and inequity, I'll share just a few examples of how racism operates in global animal advocacy. I grew up in the Netherlands. When I was little, my father taught me how to love our dogs and cats. He let me skip school when my class went on a field trip to the town's butcher, but he also cooked chicken and beef the way they did in Indonesia where he was born. Eating is central to the bond between me and my father. As an immigrant, food is the most visceral and positive connection he had left with his roots. And his food is part of my identity. When I stopped eating animals, he lovingly made me tofu and tempeh goreng, which I devoured, but I brought cheese sandwiches to school like the other kids who thought tempeh was disgusting. Now tempeh has been discovered, or more aptly Columbus, by vegans as a meat substitute. The painful irony of popularizing foods that were previously seen as a marking of inferior cultures is even greater considering how much colonizing Europeans changed the agriculture, the use of animals, and diets in the countries they conquered. Black, indigenous, and other people of the global majority suffered disproportionately from the conditions and effects, both direct and indirect, of intensive animal agriculture. The pollution, climate crisis, and health risks caused by factory farming affect marginalized communities the hardest, both in Western countries, like in North Carolina in the U.S., and across the globe. In that light, the current growth of factory farming in developing countries and the destruction of their forests to grow animal feed, all as local communities are priced out of their traditional staples by Westerners, seems like a cruel joke. Meanwhile, the most dangerous jobs in the meat industry are often filled by migrant workers with few labor protections. In the U.S., chickens are slaughtered by people from Central America. In Denmark, Polish workers kill pigs. And in Thailand, fish is processed by Burmese people working in forced labor conditions. When will we start connecting the dots between human and non-human animal oppression? What can we do? If we want to collaborate across borders, fighting for animals together, and if we want to right our wrongs, it's imperative 
that we learn how economic policies impact agriculture and consumption in developing countries, and how our ancestors affected the histories of the people whose behavior we want to change. We must consider the plight of slaughterhouse and farm workers and involve those most burdened by our unjust food systems in a process of finding and creating solutions. We can learn more about how diversity, equity, and inclusion affect the efficacy of the animal protection movement and how research done in other fields applies to our work. And if we want our message to resonate locally as well as with marginalized communities in every region, we need to ensure that our organizations are composed of diverse employees who feel like they belong, who proudly speak at conferences and enthusiastically encourage their networks to protect animals. Finally, some practical tips for international teams. Have cultural committees with representatives of each region you operate in. Form a racial equity committee with representatives from each department and leadership. Make learning about racial equity principles a mandatory component of the onboarding process, especially for leadership, the board, communication staff, and executives. Establish racial equity benchmarks in strategic plans and objectives. Recognize microaggressions as harmful and hold people accountable for the impact their words have, even or especially if their intentions are good. Hire locally and offer exchange programs between coworkers in different regions without pay gaps. Read and discuss resources on the Encompass website specifically curated for leaders working to build a just animal advocacy movement. Finally, funders of the animal advocacy movement can encourage equity and inclusion in their criteria for grantees. Hi, I'm Michelle Graham, and today I'm going to be reading my essay, How Racism in Animal Advocacy and Effective Altruism Hinders Our Mission. I encountered one of the most staggering instances of a cognitive bias a few years ago when I was working as a researcher studying flying snake locomotion. Shockingly, the cognitive bias I experienced came from me. Despite decades of being a vegetarian and then vegan, it took me several years of research to confront the discrepancy between being an animal advocate and a scientist studying animals. Although my work is non-invasive, primarily involving filming snakes, doing their natural movement behaviors, it is incredibly difficult to work with wild animals without confronting tough questions about how interacting with a snake, even just for a day, affects their life from then on. Although I've tried to answer these questions for myself, there just isn't enough data on the lives of animals living in the wild to determine how my work has affected the animals I study. Realizing this, I stopped conducting experiments, converting the last chapter in my dissertation to a computer modeling project. I also started working at Wild Animal Initiative, where we support scientific research that can help us understand and improve the lives of wild animals. Wild Animal Initiative operates within the wild animal welfare movement. This movement lies at the intersection of conservation, animal advocacy, and effective altruism. But just as I failed to recognize bias in my own research, not seeing the cognitive dissonance between my care for animals and my research, Biases also exist within each of these communities and our movement. One kind of bias that can arise within communities is failing to include relevant perspectives. For example, even though our particular approach to wild animal welfare is only a few years old, the wild animal welfare community has already made the mistake of excluding crucial perspectives. In particular, the relevance of the conservation community to wild animal welfare work was ignored for years. 
This opinion only began to shift shortly after I joined Wild Animal Initiative last year. An unnecessary division. Concern for animals living in the wild has long been a part of the animal welfare conversation, but the topic gained traction in the effective altruist community only within the last decade. Effective altruism, EA, is a charitable movement that prioritizes problems that are large in scale, relatively undervalued, and tractable to work on. EA intersects with animal protection in the effective animal advocacy movement. Wild animals are a natural fit for EA because they exist in such huge numbers, so improving their quality of life might turn out to be one of the best ways to make the world a better place. Although concern for animal welfare has been growing in the conservation movement as well, when I joined Wild Animal Initiative in 2019, the EA movement had hardly engaged with conservationists at all. After all, wild animal welfare appeared to be significantly at odds with conservation. Although many conservationists care deeply about wild animals, conservation typically works to preserve biodiversity, which is, very roughly, the number of different kinds of animals. And although almost no research has explicitly investigated the relationship between biodiversity and animal welfare, these two concepts are not the same. It is possible to have lots of different kinds of unhappy animals, for example, which might be good for biodiversity, but bad for welfare. Based on these differences, early wild animal welfare researchers largely dismissed the relevance of conservation work. Many thought that our priorities were too different and that conservationists would be uninterested in, if not outright hostile toward, wild animal welfare work. Finding the common ground. Yet this dismissal was too hasty. Wild Animal Initiative has been largely successful in discussing our work with conservation ethicists and biologists. These individuals have pointed out that low biodiversity generally leads to decreased ecosystem stability, and it is a reasonable hypothesis that the collapse of an ecosystem would harm the welfare of the animals living in it. If this hypothesis is correct, there could be valuable overlap between our communities. Of course, this hypothesis is not a foregone conclusion. To truly establish the complete relationship between biodiversity and individual welfare will take decades of study, and the answers will likely depend on the ecosystems and populations in question. But as our discussions with conservation professionals have made clear, the conservation movement comprises a large body of people who care about wild animals, many of whom at least wish to make conservation practices more humane. Although conservation work has historically focused on animal collectives, in contrast to the EA and animal welfare focus on individuals, the question of how to consider individual animals in that paradigm is ongoing within conservation. Common ground is more common than we had thought. Overall, failing consult the perspectives of conservation scientists biased our thinking about the best ways to promote wild animal welfare in the sciences. It was also strategically unwise, given that conservation scientists and activists have existing ties to land management and policy-making communities. These connections are hard to invent from scratch and critical to the success of the wild animal welfare movement. My colleagues and I had been failing to see that our movement will be stronger and more effective if we are able to find common ground within conservation and move forward together. Missing perspectives are missed opportunities. Our misstep with the conservation community is just one example of how failing to include relevant perspectives can lead to poor reasoning and bad outcomes. For wild animal welfare, conservationists represent a key community whose perspectives were missing from our work, and our work was weaker as a result. But more widely, within both EA and the animal advocacy community, a more significant exclusion has been occurring for decades, the exclusion of the voices of Black, Indigenous, and people of the global majority. 
by PGM. Both the animal advocacy and effective altruism communities have historically been dominated by white people. But of course, white people are not the only group that cares deeply about animal welfare, nor do they control the majority of global interactions with animals. Consider that China is the largest producer of eggs, representing 42% of production according to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, and five nations, China, Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, and Spain, dominate global fishing. Although there is very limited aggregate data for human effects on wild animals, the majority of animals likely live in tropical reefs and rainforests. These data illustrate that animal advocacy is an inherently global activity. BIPGM have relevant local knowledge that must be included to understand how to help animals living in their regions. Acknowledging and incorporating that knowledge is as important to effective advocacy as reflecting on how our actions in the global West affect animals living worldwide. Of course, taking action to eliminate racism is critical for improving the world, regardless of the ramifications for animal advocacy. But if the EA and animal advocacy communities fail to stand for, and not simply passively against, anti-racism, we will also lose valuable perspectives that can only come from having different lived experiences. Not just the perspectives of BIPGM who are excluded, but the perspectives of any talented person who wants to accomplish good for animals without supporting racist systems. I know this is true because even I have almost walked away from these communities myself, disquieted by the attitudes towards racism I found within them. Meeting the Effective Animal Advocacy Community. In the process of joining the burgeoning wild animal welfare movement, I have become more familiar with effective animal advocacy. When I first took a job at Wild Animal Initiative, a friend warned me that there were racist attitudes circulating in effective altruism. I knew the demographics of the group were very homogenous in race and gender. Rethink Priorities 2019 survey found the community was 87% white and 71% male. But it's hard to pin down the position of the average effective altruist on social issues because there is little central organization and the most vocal people writing about effective altruism on the internet are not necessarily the people working at or funding EA organizations. With that caveat in mind, I still found enough to be concerned. Some writers on the Effective Altruism Forum, a message board for the community, recite tired arguments for why it's not our job to address systemic racism. Others argue that racism may exist here and there, but it's not widespread. Few EA organizations publicly discuss what, if anything, they are doing to combat the incredibly homogenous demographics of the space. Although EA emphasizes a utilitarian philosophy towards charitable causes, I have seen numerous arguments about race that focus on analyzing the intent of particular actions, rather than whether the consequences of that action support racist outcomes. Together with the hostility and arrogance I sometimes encountered while giving talks, these experiences were enough to make me question whether I should take the job as executive director of Wild Animal Initiative at all. What EA has to offer. Despite the lack of obvious support for anti-racism within EA, some features of the community do seem very positive. Most EA donors trust EA organizations to know how best to use their donations. This attitude is unfortunately uncommon in other nonprofit sectors. EA is also cause neutral in the sense that the movement is concerned with the broad goal of making the world as good as possible and exploring what that means, rather than focusing on a single cause area like animal welfare or global health alone. Yet defining what it means to make the world a better place without incorporating viewpoints from representatives of BIPGM seems doomed to be a biased definition. Of course, individuals can try their best to empathize with people who are different from them, 
But empathy can only go so far toward developing a detailed and nuanced understanding of what someone else's experiences are like. I don't wish to undervalue the contributions of the many BIPGM who do participate in EA. But given the overwhelming demographic bias in the community, perhaps it is unsurprising that despite the emphasis on cost-effectiveness, the efficiency of organizations working simultaneously to stand against racism and improve the welfare of animals has been undervalued. In a recent Facebook exchange, I witnessed a dispute about the value of racial equity work within animal advocacy in real time. One objector wanted to know if animal advocates are now also expected to track the effects of our work on reducing global poverty or figure out how we can be better allies to all marginalized groups. My answer is a resounding yes. Although charities and cause areas have diverse goals and missions, all the best charitable work is united by a desire to make the world a better place. Focusing exclusively on animal welfare may be easier for operations, but ignoring the interactions between our work and other problems is not a good strategy for realizing the best possible global society. Given effective altruism's stated goals, the community should be more open to organizations trying to simultaneously achieve their stated mission while furthering justice and equity in our society. Similarly, animal advocates often ask other movements to incorporate animal considerations into their work, like asking environmentalists to also push for the abolition of factory farming. It is only fair that we in the animal advocacy community do the same. Personally, I will not participate in EA and animal advocacy without challenging the racism I see within it, whether it's intentional or not. As a white person, the significant emotional burden of speaking up has in the past made me consider disengaging from the effective animal advocacy community. I know this burden must be exponentially more difficult for my colleagues of the global majority. But I have found the support of others who believe that equity and justice are important components of making the world a better place. Creating community with these people has allowed me to continue to advocate for racial equity, even though I don't have perfect answers for how to do that. By describing how Wild Animal Initiative has been attempting to be anti-racist, I hope I will help the EA movement engage with multidimensional advocacy. Creating a safe community for everyone. One of my first goals at Wild Animal Initiative was to demonstrate that racial equity goes hand in hand with progress towards our mission. It was with that goal in mind that I attended the inaugural institute hosted by Encompass in March 2020. The institute aims to help participants explore how racism operates in their work and develop strategies to foster racial equity. I felt like I already had a decent understanding of racial equity topics and some ideas of where to start at Wild Animal Initiative, but by the end of the conference, I had a wealth of additional information to support my next steps and a group of fellow advocates to turn to for help. My next step was to discuss anti-racism with my staff with the goal of ensuring that marginalized people are comfortable and successful in our workplace. We are doing our best to incorporate the question, where will bias show up, into our regular conversations about our programs. We know they will, so we're framing this intentionally with curiosity and not trying to pretend we can rid ourselves of biases. Given the ties between money and power in the nonprofit sector, we pay attention to how money flows around our organization to determine who we are giving power to or whose voices we are amplifying. So far, this approach has led to us explicitly making space in our meeting agendas and program development processes to discuss whether suggested changes are promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI. To strengthen and codify this approach within our organization, I plan to establish a DEI review board this year, which will examine both our internal procedures and external materials. The board will, of course, be compensated for the extra work this will entail. To help ensure we are rewarding our staff for achieving their DEI goals, we asked everyone to set six-month targets that include an equity and inclusivity component. 
We have also developed a set of hiring guidelines that focused on advertising open positions on platforms that don't just target EAs, including job boards that reach by PGM. We plan to continue examining and improving our recruitment process to ensure it is not biased against by PGM. Racial equity initiatives cannot end at hiring though. Wild Animal Initiative has also recently decided to move to an algorithmically generated salary inspired by our colleagues at Rethink Priorities. This approach uses an equation with transparent inputs like location and years of experience to determine what each person's salary will be. We hope that this algorithm will remove any confusion about how pay is set and eliminate biases that can arise within salary negotiations. So far, my efforts have focused on how Wild Animal Initiative as an organization can do better on racial equity. Later this year, we will review the organization as a whole against the global diversity, equity, and inclusion benchmarks, a system I learned about at Encompasses Institute, which provides guidelines for organizational best practices. The GDEIB helps clarify the differences between best practices, such as embedding racial equity in the organizational culture, and reactive attitudes towards it, such as incorporating DEI only in HR or defining it very narrowly. Eventually, I also plan to look outward to our community and support concrete efforts that will make the communities we operate in more equitable and more effective. Within EA, I have started that process by speaking to my fellow executive directors, as well as other individuals with power in the community, about what they are doing to promote an anti-racist environment. I look forward to seeing where these conversations will take me. Looking ahead. The examples I presented early in this piece are just a few ways failing to be inclusive can limit the effectiveness of our advocacy work. What's more, failing to be actively anti-racist leads to consequences beyond our organization. The purpose behind Wild Animal Initiative is one of promoting welfare, the highest welfare possible for as many individuals as possible. While our organization is primarily focused on wild animals, I want to achieve the best possible future for all beings and the future with the highest welfare for everyone, no matter their race, their gender, their ability, their sexual orientation, species, or any other marker, is not one in which racism pervades our systems and society. Throughout this piece, I've emphasized how incorporating racial equity contributes to our effectiveness at Wild Animal Initiative. But even if I couldn't clearly see how anti-racism efforts make our work better for wild animals, in particular, Incorporating such efforts would still be a necessary step toward making the world a better place overall. Given effective altruism's stated goal of maximizing the impact of our limited resources for good, I'm looking forward to seeing more effective animal advocates incorporate anti-racism into our movement's vision of a better world. At Wild Animal Initiative, we will continue to explore how best to do that and share our progress and missteps as we go. I'm Ariana Birdie, and my essay is titled Animal Advocates, It's Time We Move From Performance to True Anti-Racism. The protesters around me reflected the diversity of our country, all donning pandemic-mandated face masks, many holding signs made from cardboard boxes. Black Lives Matter, I Can't Breathe, Defund the Police. It was June 1st, 2020, the infamous night that President Trump tear gas protesters to clear the area for a photo op in front of a church. I stood among them, albeit not near the White House. Me, a petite woman, sweating from the summer heat and donning my own homemade sign that was too wordy for someone to read quickly. A system cannot fail those it was never meant to protect. W.E.B. Du Bois. 
Beneath my face shield, my eyes were wide, and the energy of the protest fueled me the way it did 11 years ago when I was starting my fight for Black Lives in Oakland in 2009, when Oscar Grant was murdered by a BART police officer on a train from San Francisco. Though I've been working at the intersection of racial equity and animal advocacy for decades and was moved by the thousands of people who came out amidst COVID-19 to protest the horrible murder of a Black man in Minnesota, these lingering thoughts kept coming up for me. How many of these white people marching actually mean it? Is this redirected frustration from the pandemic, or do they really care about civil rights? Will this momentum persist for more than a few days or weeks? In the wake of George Floyd's murder and the ensuing social and racial unrest, we are seeing more progress on racial justice in society and in the animal rights movement than ever before. The Washington, D.C. football team has finally committed to removing a racial slur from its name. The Minneapolis City Council has taken some steps to dismantle the police and replace it with a holistic public safety force. And people are recognizing that racism and white supremacy mean more than overt violence, such as white men in hoods and robes, lynchings, or use of the N-word. But as a person of the global majority raised in Kansas by Pakistani immigrant parents, this uprising has made me both skeptical and optimistic. While I'm thrilled with the progress, it has also brought up big questions for me about whether these efforts we're seeing herald a new wave of progress or are being done begrudgingly, because the optics of not doing something are far worse. I feel this way because from where I stand, some public displays of outrage and Black Lives Matter solidarity come across as insincere. As a person who has committed her career to making the animal protection movement and the organizations that make up this movement embrace racial equity principles, I want to be honest with myself and others and recognize progress when we actually make it. And we are making progress. But in the wake of this much-needed global uprising surrounding George Floyd's gruesome murder, it's also fair to push for more. To push for authenticity, to push for accountability, and to push for amends. Racial justice work is more than something nice to have. In the three months following the murder of George Floyd, Encompass received more requests for work than we had in the entire period leading up to this moment, beginning with our founding in 2017. The volume of email was so enormous that I had a slow-to-respond auto-reply to temper expectations about when those contacting me could expect a reply. On top of the usual work of supporting Black, Indigenous, and people of the global majority by PGM, consulting with organizations and fundraising, I now have to spend time educating folks that the kind of labor they were asking of me and Encompass deserve to be compensated, a point I've been having to make since the inception of this organization. During the first three years of Encompass's existence, as we were busy building our programs, I sometimes heard white animal protection leaders express that engaging in racial equity work was a nice to have, a phrase that was actually said to me, that they thought our work was important but not important enough to prioritize in their budgets or calendars. Some days, this kind of fundamental dismissiveness was enough to make me question encompasses and admittedly my own worth. In my head, the questions seemed to play on a loop. Would I actually be able to make a difference and open people's eyes to the danger of racial inequity within animal advocacy? Were people ready for this approach? Would they actually bring us on as consultants to coach them in transforming their organizational cultures? Most pressingly, can racial equity finally penetrate the animal protection movement? My journey to encompass. 
I found an encompass because I knew that for the animal protection movement to be effective, it needs to reflect the diversity of the society it sought to change. We need diversity at all levels of the movement, notably in leadership roles. And animal advocates of the global majority need to have the things that they need to succeed, equity, not just the same access and tools that everyone gets, equality. It's important to note that people in dominant groups, whites, get to determine what's quote unquote needed to succeed in an organization. And that determination often marginalizes by PGM. I had dozens of conversations with movement leaders and animal advocates across the United States, those who are white and those who are by PGM. I spoke with grassroots animal rights advocates, as well as those at well-funded groups to ensure that in creating Encompass, we would serve those who need it most. I wanted to find an opportunity to build a stronger movement and normalize the conversation about why bringing race into animal advocacy makes us all more effective at helping animals. I asked them, does the movement need Encompass? The answer was repeatedly and resoundingly yes. That we had so much catching up to do to create an equitable, inclusive, and diverse movement. And I also found that there was indeed an appetite to begin making the necessary changes, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it'll make us more strategic, effective, and impactful. So I left my job, a stable one that provided fantastic health insurance, a 401k, paid vacation, and a wonderful boss, to jump into the murky waters of founding a nonprofit from scratch. Though some of my friends questioned my decision, either out of genuine care for me or skepticism about the mission, I made the choice to launch Encompass anyway with my eyes wide open. I knew the risks, swapping out regular paychecks for endless grant proposals that had no promise of acceptance, and I moved forward carefully and with intention. In our first two years, we focused on building the foundation and developing the strategy for Encompass. Our goal was simple but lofty, to build a thriving animal protection movement that operates at its fullest potential because it reflects the racial diversity of our country, while its organizations and advocates embrace a culture of equity, interdependence, and justice. This past year has been all about execution. It's when we hired our first employee, took on organizational clients, launched our Global Majority Caucus, commenced our webinar training series, and held our first training for the movement. While it was once just an idea one-eyed had as a result of working within the movement and feeling dismissed and overlooked because of my race, was now gaining traction. Encompass was here to stay, and I couldn't be prouder. 2020, a year of reckoning. And then amidst a burgeoning pandemic, when the future for small nonprofits like Encompass was precarious, and we were starting to budget for contingencies, George Floyd was murdered, and the Black Lives Matter movement started to gain momentum unlike anything we'd seen before. And just as swiftly as neighborhoods around the country began forming protests demanding an end to race-based police brutality, organizations and individuals that hadn't previously returned our calls or emails reached out with a sense of great urgency. Some of these folks were looking for clues about what to say to look good on race, their words, not mine, but the majority were deeply moved and eager to engage in transformative racial justice work. At last, it felt like the value of racial equity work was no longer in question. So in the midst of my own deep grief around what our country has become, and in fact always was, I also breathed a sigh of relief. Maybe we were getting somewhere. Social justice organizations focused on animal advocacy were finally starting to invest 
in racial equity and to integrate racial justice into their operations, programs, and culture. Organizations, activists, writers, donors, and podcasters reached out eager to learn more about what they could do to fight racism in animal protection and society at large. BIPGM advocates were seeking advice on how to manage racism in their activism. Things were happening and I was excited. It seemed the tide was starting to turn. The work we'd been doing for years to build racial equity in the white sector of the animal protection movement was at long last being validated. One more black person down. And yet at the same time, I had a pit in my stomach because it had taken one more black person being murdered by the police to propel this country and now animal advocates into action for racial justice. The year 2020 had indeed validated racial justice work in animal protection spaces, but at the cost of too many black folks' lives. Like many other racial justice advocates, I found myself energized by the masses of white folks boldly protesting while a voice in my head also asked, where have you been? What took you so long? At long last, the social cost of ignoring racism for one more day was higher than the actual cost of paying for racial equity work. For some, it felt like a matter of pragmatism and prioritization, not morality. And so I turned some of the questions inward asking myself, where is your line? Who will and won't you work with? Will you engage with folks even when you suspect they're being motivated by optics alone? Can you accurately identify who wants a rubber stamp from Encompass and who is genuinely interested in this work? When it became clear to me that some wanted to engage with Encompass simply to show that they were doing the quote unquote right thing, I knew it was because it became politically necessary to do so. Even writing this, I worry that the transparency of my thought process will scare off some white folks for fear that they will be perceived as posturing. The thing is, for white folks, facing white supremacy is extremely uncomfortable. But it is those times when you're most uncomfortable that you know you're doing the difficult work of facing and fighting white supremacy. So if you're a white person and you're listening to this, and in your heart you truly want to do racial equity work, you are welcome here. You are, in fact, needed here. It's okay to make mistakes, but you must investigate your motivations and be able to ask yourself, why now? Why has it taken you so long to get to this point? I know asking and answering these questions is tough, but we can't address white supremacy and racism if white folks in particular can't first address these questions. This is where the work starts and no one can shortcut this for you. Learning to speak my truth. Over the past few months, I've had to say no to more individuals, organizations, and donors than I ever have in my 30 plus years on this planet. As the executive director of a new nonprofit that works at the intersection of two controversial issues, It isn't easy to turn down clients or frankly funding. As anyone who's been a part of an early venture knows, turning away potential donors or clients who could bring in much needed income is a privilege we don't often have. But in the wake of George Floyd's murder, I did find myself in the uncomfortable position of having to say no to the kind of stuff that pays the bills. Not because we were short on time, though we were and are every day, but because when I dug deep, there were instances when it felt Like some people were simply engaging Encompass because they were looking for a shortcut, a rubber stamp, or a quick solution rather than a genuine long-term engagement and truly transformative racial justice work. This was frustrating because the sudden onslaught of requests for help felt akin to social media users doing the bare minimum, posting a black square with no comment, or wearing a safety pin, 
to meekly express solidarity rather than meaningfully engaging with this material. I knew in my gut I needed to focus my time on working with organizations and individuals committed to honest self-reflection and transformational action to create a more racially equitable movement. I feared that if I worked with folks that seemed to be looking for mere Band-Aid solutions, I would be enabling this kind of behavior. And yet, I'm not sure I've effectively held the line. And I'm not sure of the consequences of some of my decisions. In some cases, time will tell. In others, I may never know. The work we do when no one's watching. I founded Encompass because it's a group I myself needed after being in the animal protection movement for two decades and never feeling like I totally belonged. Since then, my work has revolved around holding space for others, and this essay is the first time I've been public in holding space for myself. Over the past few months, I have absolutely seen genuine awakenings from friends and colleagues. I've seen white folks working extremely hard to understand white privilege, fragility, and integrate anti-racism into their lives. I've seen so much good and so much that gives me hope for our cause and for humanity. Now that the protest crowds have thinned and people don't feel socially obligated to perform on social media, the real work has begun. It's time to look closely at the culture, policies, practices, and written and unwritten norms within organizations and communities and grow them through an equity lens. It's time to make amends with individuals or communities we may have harmed. It's time to lead with authenticity, vulnerability, and accountability. This is the work we must do when no one's watching. The work we do because we care, not because we think we have to or because we'd like the credit. The work we must do because we understand that the problem of racism is a daily emergency, whether or not it's on TV or in our Instagram feeds. These are the actions we must take because we owe it to animals and to those who advocate for them to embrace this work wholeheartedly. For those who are new to anti-racism, advocacy and are asking yourself the hard question of how you benefited from white supremacy and what you can do now to dismantle it, we welcome you. I ask that you look inside and see what's motivating you now. I ask that you challenge yourself to be critical of performative actions and work from a place of authenticity and vulnerability. This work will be difficult. You may need to make amends with individuals you've harmed. There will be no roadmap, no linear process, no easy answers. We have all grown up in an environment where challenging the status quo of racism and white supremacy culture was frowned upon, or worse, punished. White anti-racist allies should bear the brunt of this uniquely because when people in the in-group challenge the status quo, it threatens it more deeply. And because when people in the out-group challenge the status quo, our safety is threatened. I want to be clear that I'm not looking to place blame or shame but rather ask the necessary and challenging questions to foster racial equity, transformation, and the animal protection movement. Having a space to share how this work impacts me as a racial equity practitioner without being asked to provide a specific, measurable, achievable call to action is cathartic. Every day, I ask people to be real, honest, and vulnerable. I wanted to try it on for size, too. Hello, I'm Michelle Rojas Soto, and I'm going to be reading my afterword titled, Anti-Racism is a Verb, Not a Noun. Quote, one must be careful not to take refuge in any delusion. End quote. James Baldwin in The Fire Next Time. If you've read this book, I imagine you are very interested in racial equity, 
You have a passion for animal protection or both. My kind of people. I love you as deeply as I love my family. It has been meaningful for me to interact with you through these pages. Thank you for being here. At the time of this book's publication, it's been 18 months since the first cohort of participants attended the Encompass Foundational DEI Institute. In some ways, things have changed drastically since then. Virtually everyone has now heard of terms like anti-racism and racial equity, and we now have more sophisticated definitions of terms like racial disparities and white supremacy. Nonprofits, companies, and government entities are all having conversations about racism in the workplace. The Black Lives Matter movement is stronger than ever, and yet nothing has changed substantially. Some folks continue to think of anti-racism as something they can simply pick up and put down when they're tired and need a break. Some folks hope that things will improve because national BIPGM leaders and visionaries are already doing great work and the rest of us just have to stay out of their way. Some folks hope that their public statements in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, simultaneously heavy on posturing and light on accountability, are impactful by themselves because they are not quite sure what comes next. And some folks secretly hope racism will go away on its own while they continue to behave as they always have because engaging with racism is embarrassing, destabilizing, and painful. That's why this book is so important. It began as an invitation to participants of the Encompass Foundational DEI Institute to step into their responsibility in anti-racism at the individual, interpersonal, and organizational levels, and to share their reflections with the world as part of their accountability process. Jasmine, Arianish, and I hoped that authors would learn from each other and also return to their own pieces from time to time to check for progress or the lack thereof. As the project morphed into a bona fide collection of personal narratives and now into an anthology, the whole set of essays takes on additional meaning. Bell Hooks says that love is stretching one's self for the spiritual growth of someone, anyone. And so, this book is a labor of love and of hope. In these essays, authors shared their hesitation, confusion, embarrassment, and denial. They shared their curiosity, determination, conviction, and leadership. And precisely because of their vulnerability and candor, you now have a roadmap for what it looks like to engage in anti-racism from wherever you are standing today without needing to be an expert first. This book is an invitation to readers to recognize how you are currently upholding racism. Hint, not actively working to dismantle racism contributes to our racist status quo. Internally, interpersonally, and as leaders, and to grow in your anti-racism journey. This book is also an invitation to the professional animal protection movement as a whole to become wholeheartedly and personally anti-racist. At Encompass, we hold follow-up calls with our trainees every quarter. We are also engaged with several animal protection organizations in both short-term and long-term strategic racial equity projects. Throughout our work, we are seeing evidence that some movement leaders are increasingly engaging genuinely in anti-racism. 
Some are acknowledging white supremacy culture in their organizations for the very first time. Some are examining root causes of racial disparities in staff and in programs. And some are beginning to implement racial equity action plans directly tied to the organization's vision and strategy. Other leaders are not doing any of the above. What does it matter then to practice anti-racism if not everyone is engaged and if you have to do more than your share? And are we really sure that racial equity is even possible? Maybe we're aiming too high. Maybe we can stop and celebrate the fact that we've grown our collective racial literacy and agree to pass the baton to the next generation? Surely we don't have to do all the work. After all, we didn't create the problem of racism and white supremacy culture. We just inherited it. Recognize and reject these white supremacist thoughts. Traditional history books do us a disservice by focusing on names and dates. They lead us to believe that larger-than-life individuals are responsible for most of the changes and accomplishments in society, when that couldn't be further from the truth. The reality of social growth and progress is that it takes many people staying consistently engaged in justice to push for change from lots of different angles and across lots of different systems simultaneously. And while we can try to be strategic, we never know in advance what the tipping point will be or when it will come. What we do know is that BIPGM have been fighting for liberation from white supremacy for centuries that we've made progress, that the work is far from over, and that the 2020s have the potential to be transformative. Each of you reading these pages is truly essential to the work of building an equitable animal protection movement. You each have a network of people around you that you influence. Some of you design or execute advocacy campaigns. Some of you are leaders. Some of you are volunteers. Some of you are donors. Some of you wear more than one hat. All of you have power. As we look to the future, our purpose then becomes to own our powers and to use them to ground animal advocacy in a foundation of equity. We do that by creating and executing racial equity action plans that are comprehensive, substantive, and that contribute to making life better for Black, indigenous, and people of the global majority. With grit, bright ideas, and culturally responsive strategies, with accountability and transparency, we are capable of transforming animal advocacy into a strong global justice movement. Progress is not inevitable, but it is within reach. With clarity of purpose, let's carry on. This concludes the final episode of the four-part audio series of Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation. This book is a collaboration between Lantern Publishing and Media, Encompass, Sentient Media, and Our Hen House. Throughout the month of October 2021, every Thursday, we published a new episode of this four-part series, in addition to our regularly scheduled Our Hen House podcast and our monthly Animal Law podcast. And thank you so much for listening. I'm Jasmine Singer, the editor of this anthology. 
the author of The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan, and the author of the memoir Always Too Much and Never Enough. I'm also the co-host and co-founder of the award-winning Our Hen House podcast, an editor and columnist at Veg News Magazine, the VP of Editorial at Kinder Beauty, and a longtime animal activist and public speaker. I am so pleased to have brought this audio series to you through Our Hen House. We truly appreciate everyone who participated in this incredible project and everyone who helped to make this audio series come to life. Thank you so much to the essay authors featured on this episode for taking the time to record with us. Thank you to Amy Lubert for her help in coordinating it, to Jen Riley for her work in producing the series, to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for editing, and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Jocelyn Martinez and Marianne Sullivan of Our Hen House for their support, and to Our Flock for their cheerleading. Our Hen House is a 501c3 nonprofit. If you believe in the power of independent media and you want to change the world for animals, we hope you'll consider supporting our efforts and joining the flock, which you can do at ourhenhouse.org. Many benefits come with joining the Our Hen House flock, including live monthly virtual get-togethers to discuss activism and have more intimate conversations with recent podcast guests, weekly bonus content just for you, exclusive access to the Our Hen House Facebook group, and the opportunity to meet with me one-on-one to discuss your change-making endeavors. If you're not already familiar with Our Hen House, tune into our podcasts. You can find the Our Hen House podcast and the Animal Law podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And also, while you're at it, check us out on social media at Our Hen House and visit us at OurHenHouse.org. This is Jasmine Singer, and this has been the final episode of the four-part series of the audiobook for anti-racism in animal advocacy, Igniting Cultural Change. Thank you so much for listening.